Welcome to Thank You for Toilet Paper, a history of the little things, a podcast where we talk about a few things to be grateful for and the history of how they came to be. I'm your host, Elizabeth Miller. Thank you for joining me today. So today we're going to go a little bit more intangible for the gratitudes, and I'm not really sure I can speak to the origin of today's topic, how it got started necessarily, but let's get going and we'll see what we can find. A few years ago, I traveled across the pond to start a master's program in London. It was a great experience, complete with fantastic professors and wonderful classmates and fellow students from all over the world. I met loads of kind, creative, smart, and clever, dedicated students with a vision to create, contribute, and just generally make the world better. My classes were right in the heart of London, and I even had one in the basement of Somerset House, which was awesome and gorgeous and full of ice skaters in the winter. On the way to class, I'd walk past London's Fashion Week and pretend like I was fashionable, which I definitely was not in my backpack, and I'd pass the Royal Courts of Justice and turn off for the library just off of Fleet Street. Yes, that one. The demon barber of Fleet Street. (laughs) Before I went across the pond, I had chatted with a friend who had gone to the same school and tried to get an idea for what I was getting myself into. She tried to explain that it was different, but couldn't really say how. And having been there now, I guess I'd say about the same thing. Higher education, I think, is like that in general, though. And I found that I enjoyed it, and also sometimes very much did not enjoy it. Nay, sometimes I hated it. I had something of an education within an education as well when I was there. Our teachers went on strike for a few weeks during our 10-week master's program, so I got to see how that worked, how different people responded to that, and it was almost like a case study. In the end, finals were also a bit different, and it was time to get going on our master's thesis or dissertation um, before I felt ready. My focus for my dissertation was on the portrayal of women in film, as written by screenwriters or created by filmmakers as opposed to or contrasted with how women create their own narratives on platforms such as YouTube. I loved it. I got to study about authenticity. I got to study women's studies and films, and I just found it all fascinating. Loved it. Finally, the days wound down, and it was time for me to turn in my hard work. Overall, it had been a very hard year. Um, A few short months after I got to London, I learned that my parents were separating, and then there was the strike and the normal pressures of school and social life, and I was just stretched pretty thin by the end. I had cried in front of my tutor and my academic advisor. I had relied on my university friends for help studying and had definitely stretched what I thought were my limits. I'd had to retake some final exams and finally gotten everything finished and was back home in the States waiting for my dissertation score. Finally, the news came. I was in the car with my mother and a friend, and we were on our way to get gelato and visit a bookstore. Basically, we had a fun night planned. I checked my email, and there it was. Finally, I announced to the car that I had finally received the email and then proceeded to open it, and then had to also announce that I had failed my dissertation. Talk about awkward silences. We still had an evening of ice cream ahead of us, so I just kind of had to put it aside, and then we got our gelato, checked out the bookstore, and went home, where I could finally process alone and, like, cry. Growing up, I had struggled with perfectionism, and this epic failure of student loans, a year of my life, sacrifices of my family members, all of it, it was just, you know, right there, ready for me to deal with it and just face it head on. So I had a choice. My initial choice was to choose an easier lesson 
albeit still an important one with my perfectionism in the background, I could simply fail. I was tired, I had done my best to that point, and I saw it as an excellent way to prove to myself that I would still be a human worthy of love and happiness, because that's what it gets down to for me with my perfectionism, even if I failed my masters and just left it that way. So I nursed that idea for a while, thought, yep, I'll be fine, and quite honestly, that was a good realization to come to, that yes, I could look at my perfectionism and invite it to step to the side as I decided to embrace myself with mercy anyway. But after some talks with my family and my friends and their encouragement, and for me as a person who talks to God, I did some of that, God really got an earful about my feelings and my upset and about how, no, really, I'd be fine if we just let it go now and I quit. Thank you. But after all that, it seemed to be that the best way forward was to try again, give it one more go, improve what I'd done, and see about passing it a second time around. And let me just say, there was a lot to improve. <laughs> so I did it. It meant waking up at 4 a.m. and working on it for four hours or so before driving an hour to my job. It meant staying at my marvelous cousins, who lived much closer to work than I did, for about a month and waking up at 4 a.m. in their house and hopefully not waking them up. Their love and support and their chill vibes, quite frankly, meant the world to me. And with the help of co-workers and family and friends and their encouragement, I turned in my second well-cursed-out dissertation. And this time, I got the news when I was by myself and this time I passed. So what? Long story. Long story. Cool story, but long story. So what? I know we're at the new year, and typically this is when we talk about goals and resolutions, but I want to take time today to instead talk about failure and how it can be a powerful thing. Failing well and failing fast, as they say. I'm not sure who failed first or who even told them that they failed. I mean, did they just like know on their own? I mean, I guess you kind of do. There's kind of a gut feeling along with failure, isn't there? But to quote Ariana Huffington, failure isn't the opposite of success. It's part of success. So let's take a look at this stepping stone to success. According to the University of California professor Martin Covington, fear of failure is linked to our self-esteem. This is why failure can feel like such a personal blow. Covington goes on to explain that for some of us, one way to feel we have self-worth is to feel competent. And one thing that failure does is trick our brains into thinking we are not competent. Beyond that, Guy Winch, PhD, argues that rather than a fear of failure, what we are more afraid of than failure itself is actually shame. That feeling of shame that can accompany failure. That's what trips us up. We feel ashamed, we feel incompetent, and sometimes less helpful emotions can drag us down so that we sit in that shame and feeling of worthlessness for a while. Winch further explains that failure can make us believe we're helpless or distort our perceptions of our abilities and what we're capable of doing. It can make a goal seem less attainable, even if it's still within the realm of our abilities. But the truth is, studies have shown that failure does not in fact make you less likely to succeed a second time. You're not less competent if you fail. Sometimes it can even be the opposite. A study in the Journal of Psychology of Sports and Exercise found that when we fail, it may hurt our self-esteem but it has no effect on your actual performance. So sometimes our self-esteem takes a hit, and we start to experience emotions that cause us to slow down, to stagnate, to feel discouraged or depressed, and that's normal. One trick, as advised by Nick Hobson, PhD, Leandra McIntosh, and Maria Marashi in their article, Turning Failure into Fuel for Success, is this. First off, recognize your failure. And then turn off the rationalizing, accept it for what it is, and avoid the I should've, could've, would've, all the have-dones. Then feel your feels. 
See what you're feeling and name it. Don't condemn it or call it good or bad. Just name it, like you would a puppy. Then take action. Emotions let us know that something is up, and it gets us ready to do something about it. So if you're feeling more stagnating emotions, like feeling defeated, try to turn to those more energizing emotions, like feeling defiant or ready to go or just like, ah, you know, that feeling, that, that feeling as defined by the dictionary. Gah. Um, <laughs> Sometimes when we can't turn our failure into a success, it can simply be a tool for some excellent feedback, like a call for simplicity. According to Perpetua Neo, failure can help you trim down and simplify your life. Okay, so I find out that I failed at X, Y, or Z. If I really wanted to succeed at X, Y, or Z, I can keep going. If I find that maybe it's not as big of a deal to me as I thought, I can let it go and I can still learn from it. You can just embrace you being you. And you being you does not have to be you doing everything. You're good enough as is. When fear of failure is tied to our self-worth, it makes sense that we want to avoid failure. We want to appear competent. We want to appear confident. We want to persevere and protect our sense of self-worth. Because, you know, we live with ourselves, so we want to feel good about ourselves. Well, even that's a journey. We can talk about that one later. In fact, rather than avoiding failure, what can be most helpful is learning to embrace the lessons of failure, to exercise some agility. Learning agility, which is defined by Robert Biswas Diener in his article, A Positive Look at Failure, as, quote, the tolerance of risk, an ability to sidestep the paralyzing effects of perfectionism, and the capacity to bounce back from small stake errors. People with high learning agility naturally believe that the learning that follows mistakes can actually help them. Close quote. Additionally, another key to overcoming a fear of failure is self-forgiveness. Professor of the University of Texas, Kristen Neff, has found that people who practice self-compassion are able to more quickly recover from failure. They are also likely to try out new things. And guess what? You're allowed to make mistakes. It's part of growth and learning. And as we said earlier, it's a stepping stone on the path to success. And as you can forgive yourself, then your self-worth isn't threatened. Because failure doesn't actually speak to your worth. You are worthwhile just because you're here. And all of this is reason to grow and learn. Tackling life with a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset, can be helpful, as encouraged by Carol Dweck. With a growth mindset, a mistake or failure doesn't outweigh everything you've already accomplished. Those are opportunities. Perpetua Neo encourages this exercise. Quote, ask yourself, what are you proud of? What demons are you proud for conquering? How have you grown as a person? Close quote. Take the time to celebrate yourself and your successes. I mean, if you got out of bed today, that's a success. If you didn't, but you opened your eyes, that's another success. It's still a success. Not that failure is scary anymore, right? We fixed it. We did it. No, I'm kidding. Okay, <laughs> it's practice. It'll take practice, but we're getting there. To help encourage us along the way, I've done the work and found an amazing list of failures some of whom overcame obstacles and succeeded anyways, some of which led to happy accidents, and some of which are, well, just failures, but it turned out that life continued on and there was still space for joy and love ahead. So without further ado, I present to you the Thank You for Toilet Paper's Hall of Fame for failures. Before we get going though, I just want to point out we've already talked about a few failures and happy accidents. There's Christensen with his Legos and many, many factory fires, and there was also the happy accident of the invention of superglue. So, we're in good company. Alright, first off, the well-known Bill Gates. 
Gates started with a company called Trafodata. Never heard of it? Well, that's because it failed miserably. He was also a Harvard dropout. Maybe I should have given up on my dissertation. Could have been Bill Gates. After net losses from the oh-so-unpopular Trafodata, things looked down and out for Bill. He had spent six years on this project, and about six years after the death of Trafodata, however, Gates came back with a little thing called Microsoft. And well, that one happened to succeed. Next up is Ariana Huffington of the Huffington Post. Her second book was rejected by 36 publishers. 36! If that's one publisher a month, that would have been three years of continuous monthly rejections. That's not how it worked, but I'm just saying, like, numerically, imagine that. Imagine a steady stream of rejections for three years. Rough stuff. Eventually, her book was accepted by a publisher. Even later, when the Huffington Post started to get off the ground, it, too, had to overcome negative reviews. But it did, and it's here today, an impressive publication. Another kicker is Walt Disney. Can you believe someone once told him that he had no creativity? And not just that he lacked creativity, but they actually fired him for his lack of creativity from the newspaper he worked for. Talk about fuel for a creative fire. The Walt Disney Company, however, was not even his first attempt to enter the animation business. He had a company before Disney called Laughograms. He raised $15,000 for that company, but it eventually failed after a distributing partner had to close down. And now look at his legacy. Walt Disney still holds the record for most Oscars won by an individual. The number is 23, in case you were wondering. Not to mention his incredible vision for the family-friendly parks like Disney World and Disneyland. In times of such failure, one thing I know I turn to is chocolate. And I have yet another failure to thank for some of my sweet consumptions. Milton Hershey was fired from his printing apprenticeship. He went on to start three candy companies to watch them fail. Finally, on a fourth try, he found success, and chocolate for the masses became a reality. Cheers for that one, Milton. And what pairs better with chocolate than a good book? Where we find yet another famous failure, and I'll let her tell her story in her own words, J.K. Rowling shared a part of her journey with failure like this. Quote, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain, without being homeless. The fears that my parents had had for me and that I had had for myself had both come to pass, and by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. And then she kept going. And then she was in a cafe. And then she was writing on napkins. And then we have Harry Potter. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't quite that sequential, but she kept going. There are countless others that we could name. People like Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, Michael Jordan, Oprah Winfrey, and many, many more. So what about the failures that led to something wonderful? Like, I don't know, the potato chip. Yep, turns out that the potato chip was an accidental discovery. George Crumb, a chef at the Cary Moon Lake House in Saratoga Springs, New York, was trying to make a plate of fried potatoes. The story goes that a customer kept returning the plate of potatoes back to the chef, requesting that they be made thinner and more fried. Frustrated, Crumb cut the potatoes as thin as possible and fried them until they were crisp and hard. Much to everyone's surprise, the customer loved them and wanted more. Thank you, Mr. Crumb. Another failure turned happy accident? Fireworks. The story goes that there was a cook in China. We don't know his name, but he was experimenting with ingredients that were common to kitchens in that day, some 2,000 years ago. Things like charcoal, sulfur, and saltpeter. Saltpeter? Guys, I don't know how to say that one. 
saltpeter. The cook put them all into a bamboo tube, no idea why, and it exploded. And well, now we have the spectacular displays of, I suppose, what we should rightfully call cooking shows rather than firework shows. Last one. This one's great. Here's a story about literally getting the opposite of what you were trying to do. Spencer Silver was a researcher for 3M Laboratories. His task was to make an incredibly strong adhesive. He was trying to make strong glue. Unfortunately, Silver created the exact opposite. It was the weakest adhesive that had ever been invented. Weaker than anything else on the market. Well, that idea was tossed. But years later, a colleague spread the weak sauce glue on pieces of paper to hold his place in his choir hymn book. And then came the idea. The invention of the sticky note. Post-it note, whatever you want to call it. Okay, quick bonus story. I'm sorry. I just had to because I love German. Turns out, Alexander Graham Bell came around to the idea of the telephone transmitting multiple sounds over wires because he read a German book by Hermann von Helmholtz, and it turned out that his German was rusty. He got the idea for sending sounds over wires from the book, but the book literally said nothing about such an idea. Yay for poor German! (laughs) There's hope! (laughs) Now, a few failures that were just failures, so we can all feel human. Let's start with a big one. During the Great Plague of London, people were convinced that cats were the ones spreading the disease and began to kill off the cats in the town. Spoiler alert, turned out that rats were actually responsible for the carry and spread of the plague, and Londoners had just killed off the rats' feline predators. Whoops. Remember that episode we just did about pine trees and how before we had Methuselah, we had Prometheus, the oldest pine tree in the world? Well... Now we have the story of how Methuselah took Prometheus' title. Turns out, it was 1964, and a grad student killed the 5,000-year-old tree in an effort to retrieve a tool that had gotten stuck. He had no idea. Man, I hope that tool lives to be 5,000 years old. Ouch. In 1971, Ford released the Pinto, a great and affordable car whose only problem was that it happened to burst into flames if rear-ended. 1.5 million cars were recalled. Another great blunder, in 1990, NASA spent $1.5 billion, with a B, to build and launch the Hubble Space Telescope, only to realize once it was in orbit in space that it took incredibly blurry pictures. If you squint, right? Maybe it looks better. In 2000, Blockbuster, remember that one? It was at the top of its game at the time. They had the chance to buy an up-and-coming little company called Netflix for about $50 million. Blockbuster declined and eventually, well... Well, we have no blockbusters anymore, really, do we? And Netflix has a market value, as of 2018, of $150 billion. Last one. In 2014, the French government made a miscalculation and bought 2,000 new trains that were, unfortunately, too big for 1,300 stations. They then had to spend $60 million to widen those stations. Even governments are not immune to the frailties of humanity. If that is a surprise, now we know. So, it turns out that failure is just a part of being human, and it can be useful, it can teach us things, it can make us laugh, it can lead to unexpected discoveries, and sometimes it just helps us understand, have some empathy when others fail, just like we do, and we can reach out to each other and help each other, give a shoulder to cry on, laugh with someone, lend a listening ear or a long walk or just some uncomfortable silence, <laughs> as we all learn to see that We are still of great worth, and failure does not affect our abilities or our intrinsic value. You're worth it. You're loved. You're great. 
failing's human, and sometimes it's funny. Thanks for listening. Hope you all have a great week. Thank <laughs> you.